This is KBOO Portland. The time is 9.59. Coming up next is the Heather McCoy Show. Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Coley Neighborhood Farmer's Market. This is a weekly event at 5011 Northeast 42nd Avenue at Alberta Street in Portland. The market features local farmers and businesses in this Thursday, July 11th. There will also be face painting and music by Pete Krebs. Again, that's the Coley Neighborhood Farmer's Market, Thursday, July 11th, from 4 to 8 p.m. at 5011 Northeast 42nd Avenue at Alberta Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-231. 8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. The Finance Committee will meet Wednesday the 17th at 4.30 p.m. for the month of July. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor songs and readings from the Ale House at the End of the World on Friday, July 19th from 6 to 8 p.m. at Books Around the Corner in Gresham. The Ale House at the End of the World is an old story of a tyrant and a rebellion, of monsters and humans, of love and death. Know this, there are creatures who travel back and forth from the spirit world to the land of the living. This book is Stephen Alred's Romp Through the Afterlife, written with the gusto of a great drinking song. Again, that's Songs and readings from the L House at the End of the World on Friday, July 19th from 6 to 8 p.m. at Books Around the Corner, 40 Northwest 2nd Street in Gresham. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. And welcome to the Heather McCoy Show. Joining me on the line is Mark Stein. He is the author and curator of the book, The Stonewall Riots, A Documentary History. It's published by New York University Press. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks very much. Uh, Oh, you're very welcome. Um, This book is unique uh, in that, aside from the introduction, the book is mostly comprised of excerpts from um, mostly LGBT press from Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York uh, from five years before the Stonewall Riots, during the Stonewall Riots, and roughly five years after. How did the idea germinate uh, behind the book? Well, there are two really good scholarly histories of the Stonewall Riots, one by David Carter and one by Martin Duerman. They were published some years ago. Uh, They focus really on New York City in 1969. So I didn't really want to do uh, repeat what they had done. Uh, and um, as a teacher, I really enjoy teaching my students how to do history, which requires reading materials from the past. Uh, and so I came up with the idea of putting together a book that would uh, present uh, materials from 1965 to 1973, so a bit broader chronologically, uh, a bit broader geographically, because mine is more of a national story. And uh, as you indicated, lots of LGBT media materials, um, but also mainstream and alternative left underground media stories, a few transcripts of court cases, uh, some demonstration flyers, 
um, uh, photographs, maps, uh, so students uh, and other people who are interested would have the raw materials from which we can develop uh, historical interpretations. And then how long did this process take? Because not all these archives are digitally out there. That's right, that's right. Well, I've been working in this field for almost uh, 30 years, uh, so some of it just comes from my previous research. But um, I guess I worked uh, in earnest on the project for about 18 months. Oh, wow. Uh, like, as you stated, you are a, a professor of history at San Francisco State. Explain to the audience the difference between primary and secondary resources in uh, doing research on this book. Well, secondary sources are uh, accounts from later uh, interpretations, analysis. So usually we think of secondary sources in the field of history as the work produced by historians uh, years, decades, centuries later uh, after the events described. Primary sources are really on the ground sources from the period. Uh, so um, those would be first-hand accounts from participants. They would include journalistic accounts. Um, they would include, uh, as I mentioned, you know, transcripts of court cases from the time. So, you know, we really emphasize that in teaching history because uh, why should we take the word of someone else rather than investigating primary sources ourselves? In the classroom, I sometimes riff <laughs> on Judge Judy and how she always rules out, uh, you know, anything that she would classify as hearsay. Um, and in a sense, uh, that's what we do as historians. We, uh, we want to see the materials from the past and not necessarily trust what other people um, have, um, have said about whatever event we're describing. As we recently learned via the New York Times Magazine article about the fire on the lot of Universal Studios, which burned original master tapes of recording artists from Coltrane to Nirvana to the Carpenters, uh, sometimes archive materials are not kept in the safest location. Uh, if for your original research for this book, you visit archives of LGBT for, for LGBT materials from around the country. Uh, talk about the process and how accessible are these materials, which contain LGBT history for the general public to do their own work. Well, it's a it's a good question, and uh, I'm also a member of the board of directors of the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, and uh, it's been around for a few decades, and uh, at its core, it is also an archive, but it's true, I also travel to um, other locations in the United States. So really, for decades, uh, there have been community-based uh, LGBT archive projects, and those projects were really motivated by knowledge that mainstream archives were not collecting LGBT materials. So if you wanted, uh, you, you know, decades ago, if you wanted to find copies of LGBT uh, magazines, newspapers, letters, um, all sorts of other kinds of material, uh, it was quite challenging, and you had to go to the physical archives, and these were usually community-based. Now, over time, some mainstream uh, institutions have begun to do a good job of collecting materials. So uh, I did a lot of work in the New York Public Library, which for a long time has had an LGBT collection. It actually is based on absorbing uh, what had originally been some community-based LGBT archives. Um, and um, those community-based archives now exist in a lot of uh, forms, so in Southern California, what used to be two different community-based gay archives were absorbed by University of Southern, Calif um, Southern California, so they're now available through USC Library, uh, and whereas other places like in San Francisco and the GLBT Historical Society, we remain autonomous and community-based. Now, in the last few years, there's been a lot of digitization projects, so more and more of those materials are available online. Often you have to be uh, affiliated with the university to have a free subscription um, to those uh, archives. Uh, and I would also really emphasize there are a lot of materials that are still not digitized. Uh, and so, you know, again, just to take an example, to do this work, the most widely circulating gay magazine of the second half of the 60s was called Drum. It was published in Philadelphia, and it's not fully digitized. Same thing for the 70s and 80s, the Los Angeles Advocate, which then became The Advocate, most widely circulating gay magazine of the 70s and 80s, still not fully digitized. Yeah, uh, so let's talk about the early LGBT movement. It came out of a reaction to the conformity of the 1950s and specifically the McCarthy era. What was it like to be LGBT in that time frame? 
Well, it was certainly challenging in a variety of ways. Uh, the, every state uh, had laws against same-sex sex uh, until Illinois in the early 60s became the first state to repeal its sodomy law. Uh, and lots of cities and counties had laws against um, cross-dressing, what, what was called gender impersonation, and that was really just the start of things. Uh, the American Psychiatric Association classified homosexuality as a mental illness. Um, it was um, possible and common to be fired from your jobs if you were LGBT, which, by the way, is still the case in many American states. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, so it was very difficult. Bars were raided on a regular basis. Um, but I would also really emphasize that uh, lots of the accounts that I reprinted suggest that conditions were improving in the second half of the 1960s. Uh, so we can't really flatten out the entire period from the 50s and 60s uh, to equate, say, the Lavender Scare uh, of the earlier part to what was going on in 1965 through uh, the, the midpoint of 1969 when the Stonewall riots happened. But to clarify, though, that they were improving for LGBT people within major cities. If you were out in, I don't know, Arkansas, not to pick on Arkansas, but they were still pretty bad. Yes, yes. We don't really... We, actually, there's a whole lot more research to be done. Uh, there's some evidence, actually, oh. that actually stretches back centuries, that rural communities... Um, that uh, less populated communities sometimes would have a live-and-let-live attitude uh, and a oh. kind of surprising degree of acceptance and tolerance for locals. Now, the distinction often made, right, <laughs> is, um, is if you grew up in the community, if your family had been there for decades, and if you were just a little, considered a little eccentric <laughs> in terms of your gender presentation or your sexual interests, you know, that might be okay in some communities. Uh, and um, so, you know, there's a, a lot of variability. And, um, you know, I think we tend to think of the pre-Stonewall era as just monolithically awful. And one of the things I was trying to do with my book is to show that, you know, there, there actually was a lot of variability by geography, by exact period, uh, you know, and so things were actually um, changing. It's interesting that you bring up monolithically awful because, like, uh, I've, I'm trans. I, I transitioned and so I started in 2009. The period between 2009 and 2013 wasn't so bad because even though it was pre-Orange is the New Black, people just, like, kind of left me alone. And it was after, like, trans visibility started is when, like, the real vengeful, hateful stuff started. Mm, interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, that... that uh... That doesn't entirely surprise me, and that's that's kind of a micro and very recent example of how things change. But um, um, I mean, there's a case from colonial America that many of us teach of a man named Nicholas Sension who um, was accused for decades of um, sexual seduction or sexual harassment or sexual violence. It's unclear in the sources with his younger male servants. Uh, in his household, and uh, the community seemed to uh, function by discouraging it, by disapproving of it, but by not by bringing down the hammer of the law or uh, the church uh, until finally, decades later, he began to cross new boundaries and new lines. And, you know, at least one historian has argued that it suggests that perhaps even in uh, colonial New England, uh, which supposedly is very, very repressive, uh, there, there could be uh, moments or situations of tolerance, not acceptance and, yeah. um, and not celebration, but, but, uh, but tolerance. Well, and I also think that there's different roles for people that are extremely talented. For example, like in this time period that we're writing about in this before the Stonewall riots, um, like Gore Vidal was on national TV uh, with ABC during the, I think, 68 presidential debates. Right, that's right. And James Baldwin was celebrated as a as a novelist. You know, we know a lot about Bayard Rustin and his struggles with the civil rights movement, where some people in the leadership of the civil rights movement um, accepted him and found ways to work with him, and others did not. And so, uh, you know, that's another example of of some some degree of variability we know with christine jorgensen in the 1950s yes. and then in the 1960s there was some celebration and some uh sensational um interest 
uh, but then there was also condemnation, criticism, you know, and, and that changed over time, and it depended on which media source, um, which part of the country we're talking about. Yeah, and just to um, give you uh, listeners a frame of reference, um, you're an archivist, you're a historian, I love audio archives. Um, this is a clip of an early of what early LGBT rights organizations were up against. This is a clip from a Charles Keating of the Keating Five fame in the 80s. He financed this scare film. It's called Perversion for Profit, and it's actually hosted by L.A. uh, news anchor George Putnam. I'm going to play about three minutes of this. It's all very reefer madness funny now, but it wasn't then. I'd like to begin with a fact, a simple yet shocking fact. It is this. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of newsstand obscenity and is threatening to pervert an entire generation of our American children. We know that once a person is perverted, it is practically impossible for that person to adjust to normal attitudes in regard to sex. Uh-oh. Yet much of this material has been described as an illustrated, detailed course in perversion. Abnormal sex crime, and violence. It is also a fact that no matter who buys this material, 75 to 90% of it ends up in the hands of our children. Now, you might ask yourself, why this sudden concern? Pornography and sex deviation have always been with mankind. This is true. But now, consider another fact. Never in the history of the world have the merchants of obscenity, the teachers of unnatural sex acts, had available to them the modern facilities for disseminating this filth. High-speed presses, rapid transportation, mass distribution, all have combined to put the vilest obscenity within reach of every man, woman, and child in the country. In the past few years, this obscenity traffic and salacious newsstand literature have become increasingly worse, not only in content, but in volume. This traffic continues to increase and flourish for one reason. It is big business, profitable business, for the mercenary persons who produce it, and for its more than 800 distributors. The United States Supreme Court has described it as dirt for dirt's sake. We describe it as dirt for money's sake. Obscene literature is a $2 billion a year business. That's $2 billion. Through this material, today's youth can be stimulated to sexual activity for which he has no legitimate outlet. He is even enticed to enter the world of homosexuals, lesbians, sadists, masochists, and other sex deviants. The psychiatric terms for these unnatural sex acts are unknown to most decent adults in our country. But through this salacious material, these abnormalities are corrupting the minds and the hearts of our children. Perversion for profit. Here is the most vicious, the most insidious feature of these publications. They constantly portray abnormal sexual behavior as being normal. They glorify unnatural sex acts. They tell youngsters that it's smart, it's thrilling, it provides kicks to be a homosexual, a sadist, and every other kind of deviant. Well, it is kind of fun. Uh, we are joined by Mark Stein. He's the author of the Stonewall Riots and Documentary History. We just heard a clip from a movie called Perversion for Profit. It gets funnier after that, believe it or not. Um, so, how, like, a lot of people credit Tumblr, specifically Facebook, and a few other ones of just, like, allowing other trans people, or YouTube especially, of allowing, like, other trans people to communicate with other trans people. How important were these, like, magazines and publications uh, to the basically letting LGBT people know that they're not strange, they're not alone, and that there are other people like them? I think they were incredibly important, and uh, through the 1950s and early 1960s, there were
were three uh, really pretty major um, what were called homophile movement magazines. Uh, first one magazine, then Mattachine Review, and then the latter. They were published by three of the early um, gay and lesbian rights groups uh, based in California. 1958, one actually won a U.S. Supreme Court case because the postmaster um, uh, in Southern California tried to uh, uh, censor uh, issues of one, and uh, the Supreme Court uh, upheld um, or sided with one magazine uh, and um, declared that the, the post office couldn't um, exercise that kind of censorship. So they were, you know, they were very important. They reached uh, first hundreds, then thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of readers. And then the landscape of those periodicals changed uh, in uh, um, as we move into the 1960s. Um, over time, one and Mattachine Review disappeared, uh, and a few trans periodicals emerged, including the Erickson Educational Foundation newsletter and Transvestia. Uh, and then Drum Magazine out of Philadelphia began publishing in 1964. This is something I um, studied in my first book, which was on Philadelphia gay and lesbian history. And its creative move was to combine the features of physique magazines. So on the cover, it featured, you know, muscly young men, shirtless often, sometimes um, even um, less clothing. Uh, and inside, um, and that made it like a physique magazine. There were many on the market, very successful. Uh, but inside Drum Magazine, there were, in addition to sexy photographs, there was hard-hitting news, coverage of the homophile movement, sometimes even legal briefs that were fully reprinted. Uh, and Drum had uh, thousands of readers around the United States. And one of the interesting things leading up to the Stonewall Riots is that it um, ultimately was suppressed by the federal, state, and local government um, uh, uh, and closed in May of 1969. So we're kind of missing coverage of the Stonewall Riots from what had been for several years the most widely circulating uh, gay movement magazine in the country. When the, yeah, I hear the term homophile, it just kind of, like, it, it as somebody that loves music, it conjures up the term audiophile, and most audiophiles are of middle to upper class. Was that the case for a lot of the audiences of these magazines? Uh, uh, depending on how we define upper class. I think there was some class diversity in the readership. Uh, we don't really know the extent, um, but, um, but certainly uh, it seems like a majority of the readers were, were middle class. We don't know a whole lot about uh, the readership. Interestingly, I was able to track the circulation numbers for DRUM because the FBI had it under surveillance, and they actually monitored how much postage the uh, publisher um, purchased um, at the, uh, in Philadelphia when he mailed out the ma magazine and had records uh, that were better than any of the records that survived of the, the group that published Drum. Uh, so, um, what was the you know, circulation? We, it was it reached in the um, uh, tens of thousands. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about LGBT activism before the Stonewall Riots. One of the things I like about your book is you break it up into sections. So you have, like, basically uh, LGBT journals uh, talking about, like, uh, LGBT rights as in, like, theory, but then you also break it up into activism so that there's, like, a, a split between the theory section and the activism part. Um what were some of what what was some of the uh, major accomplishments of the uh, Mission Society One Incorporated and Daughters of Bristils? Daughters of Belitis, and then uh, you know again Belitis, those okay. not not the main organizations in the second half of the sixties. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the first part of my book, the first three chapters, which focus on the pre-Stonewall era. Um, it's divided into three chapters. First, I look at um, gay bars and anti-gay policing. And then, as you say, I have a chapter on activist agendas and visions, and then a chapter on um, uh, protests, political protests. Uh, so the chapter on political protests shows that there were more than 30 LGBT uh, demonstrations, picket lines, uh, sit-ins, riots, um, before the Stonewall riots. And uh, some of them were directly successful, others were successful in changing consciousness, um, mobilizing more people to get involved, uh, educating the public. Um, so they had success in different forms, uh, but I kind of grouped together those protests in four 
uh, categories. There were some that uh, really embodied the strategy of militant respectability, and by that I mean they were, um, you know, they were demonstrations at Independence Hall and the United Nations and the White House and federal buildings, and there were rules about people wearing gender-conforming clothing, highly respectable, but at the same time highly militant. Second, there were demonstrations that were more transgressive. Um, so we have Sir Lady Java, who, um, an African-American trans woman who lost her job at a club in Los Angeles, organizing a demonstration there, the Compton's Cafeteria Riot in San Francisco, um, uh, and um, the sweep-in, where a group of hustlers and LGBT youth uh, in the Tenderloin in San Francisco organized a cleanup of the neighborhood. Uh, so that's the second grouping. Then I look at protests against police violence, police raids, and there are two great examples of that in Los Angeles um, after raids on uh, the Black Hat and the Patch, um, different kinds of LGBT protests. And then finally, I look at Several months before the Stonewall riots, there was really a tremendous upsurge in LGBT demonstrations in the Bay Area uh, that took off in March of 1969. Yeah, talk about the Black Cat and the Comptons, right? The Black Cat, for me at least, has become in my consciousness. I read an article about it maybe a couple of Junes ago during Pride, and I had not heard of that before. The Compton riot, I had not heard it of all until I read your book. Uh-huh. That's interesting. There's a great um, documentary called Screaming Queens done by Susan Stryker and Victor Silverman about the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. Uh, and there I really made an exception uh, to my rule of only relying on documentary sources from the immediate period. We don't actually have any documentary sources of the Compton's Cafeteria Riot from 1966 when it occurred. Um, but uh, I do reprint the earliest trace we have in print, which is 1972. Uh, so Susan Stryker really was able to document the riot not through usual printed materials, but through primarily oral histories. Um, so we know there was both a protest in July and then the riot in August at Compton's, which was a cafeteria in San Francisco's Tenderloin. Uh, lots of trans patrons and routine harassment by the owners, the um, employees of the cafeteria, and the police. And um, one night in uh, 1966, it crossed the line, and the trans patrons began fighting back. Um, by some accounts, it began with one uh, basically tossing coffee into a police officer's um, face, uh, and then a riot ensued, followed by another protest. So, you know, that's the that's the basic outline of the the Compton's Cafeteria riot. Um, uh, the Black Cat. There had been a very violent raid at a New Year's event um, at the Black Cat in Los Angeles, uh, and um, uh, this was, uh, I believe, it was as turning into 1966, turning into 1967, and um, in reaction to that, uh, there was an organized protest, um, and by some accounts it had 400 participants, making it perhaps the largest of those pre-Stonewall demonstrations. Other accounts put the number a little bit lower, but uh, either way, it was quite large, and in a sense, it serves as a um, preview of what happened at Stonewall because it was triggered by a police raid on a gay bar. In the 1960s, there was a height of the space race, and as Florence Conrad stated in her article, science is like God to most people, end quote, uh, and the early groups wanted to find scientific evidence that they were not perverts or deviants. How successful was this approach in the 1960s? Well, I think they cracked the consensus, the earlier consensus that, uh, that LGBT people were mentally ill. And uh, that doesn't mean that uh, a majority um, of medical experts, scientific experts, psychiatrists uh, had turned the corner, but um, a significant and increasingly vocal minority of experts began to challenge the conventional wisdom. Uh, we see that in particular. Uh, my second book is actually on Supreme Court decisions uh, about sex marriage and reproduction in the 60s and 70s. It's called Sexual Injustice, and I focus there on a gay immigration case called Boudelier versus the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled against the gay immigrant who was challenging the provision of U.S. immigration law that provided for 
deporting and excluding people with psychopathic personalities, and that was understood to include, quote-unquote, homosexuals. Um, so he lost his case in 1967 before the Supreme Court. But that said, one of the briefs in the case, um, which was put forward um, by the Homosexual Law Reform Society, a Philadelphia-based group, featured the expert opinions of several dozen um, um, sexologists, psychiatrists, anthropologists, sociologists, other types of uh, experts, uh, and it presented their view that homosexuality was not a mental illness. So, you know, that was quite substantial. The justices of the Supreme Court paid attention to it. Uh, the dissenters, of which there were three quoted from the brief, uh, used that information, and there was at least um, a, a crack in the previous um, social consensus. And then ultimately, that effort would bear fruit, pardon the pun, uh, in 1973, <laughs> 1973, when the APA uh, declassified homosexuality as a mental illness. Um, the homophile movement of the 60s, of the early 60s, before Stonewall, uh, still has the same dynamics of our movement today. Uh, Clark B. Pollock writing in the homophile puzzle states, quote, the square believes in organization, negotiation, in the manners and morals and techniques which dominate which the dominant culture, which he addresses in its own language. And then we used to discover in Watts, California, the hip Negro has nothing to do with the square Negro and his organizations and those organizations that do not speak for him. Um, this reminds me of the dynamic today between groups like, let's say, Human Rights Watch and people like me who want more radical reforms of society. Um, how do activist groups address this large gulf in our understanding? Yeah, really what I want to emphasize as a historian is that these conflicts are not new, and these <laughs> are not new, uh, and over and over and over again we see the pre-Stonewall movement depicted as small and accommodationist and respectable, and certainly parts of it were, but um, someone like Clark Pollock, who was the you know publisher of Drum Magazine, the magazine that I mentioned before, he was on the... Um, sexual cutting edge of the homophile movement, and he was not the only homophile movement leader who was calling for the movement to follow black power as opposed to civil rights as its model for activism. In San Francisco, in the months leading up to Stonewall, there were um, explicit uh, calls for the gay movement to join the movement of movements and start a gay revolution. And those activists who were organized in a group called the Committee for Homosexual Freedom, you know, really um, represented much more radical politics than the previous uh, organizations. So those conflicts and those divisions are really um, are really quite old. I think one of the things that's important when we think about commemorating Stonewall is to remember that um, Stonewall represented, in many respects, a rejection of the strategies of respectability that had been used um, by much, but not all, of the homophile movement um, in the earlier years. And uh, there was some ambivalence by earlier activists about the idea of rioting as opposed to peacefully demonstrating um, as a strategy. Um, you know, some of their goals may have overlapped, but um, but certainly their, their their tactics did not. And, you know, we can even ask questions about whether their ultimate goals were the same, because much of the more mainstream parts of the movement wanted uh, inclusion and assimilation and were willing to accept the basic structures of American society, whereas... Um, pre-Stonewall and post-Stonewall, there were uh, radicals who wanted uh, to use the particular perspectives generated from gender and sexual marginality to challenge larger structures of, of society. Well, but even before Stonewall, Watt seems to have ignited a more radical um, LGBT movement. I, I think that's right. You know, so the, the gay movement adopted as a slogan, uh, gay, is, uh, gay is good, and that was clearly modify, mo um, modeled on black is beautiful as a slogan, a, a slogan that came out of the black power movement. Um, it's no accident, I think, that um, you know, Stonewall became what it became because it, it took the form of a riot, and gay activists were very invested in calling it a riot. The initial media stories, uh, as is revealed in my book, did not refer to it as a riot. They called it a melee or a near riot. But right away, the gay press um, called it a riot. I think they wanted to um, associate what they had done with 
these very visible, very powerful, very threatening uh, riots that had begun with Watson 65, but that had actually been taking place every summer um, in the 60s after, uh, after Watts, and so it was very much on the mind of, um, I think, people during that period of time, and, um, and you know, that was arguably as much or more of an influence than the nonviolent civil rights movement. Yeah, let's talk about the Sonora riots in New York. In San Francisco, they had a, a, a guild of taverns, and the LGBT bars were actually owned by LGBT people, and they would actually show films, and it was more of a community. In New York, the mafia owned a lot of the LGBT bars. There were six characteristics of a, of a mafia-owned bar. I don't remember one of them. I remember one of them actually being... Um, it's darkly lit, and there's goons at the door. And if you don't look what they, if you don't look the part of what they think gay is, they being the mafia, they don't let you in. Um, and then they had this like in New York, they had mafia. The, the mafia owned the bars. Then the 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 um, basically the alcohol control board made it so that it was illegal to serve uh, gay people knowingly as a bar. And then the police had kickbacks, and it put uh, gay people in a tenuous situation. That's right. There was a payoff system whereby the bar owners and managers paid off the police uh, in order to reduce, so not completely eliminate, police raids. Um, but on the issue of you know the legality of, of bars, that's a perfect example of how things were changing. Uh, there was the famous sip-in in New York City uh, in the mid-60s where uh, gay activists uh, were determined to challenge the New York State rule that merely serving an, a homosexual, quote-unquote, um, was a violation of liquor licensing laws. And they ultimately succeeded through direct action. Um, they insisted, they, they went into bars, they announced that they were homosexuals, and they asked to be served. And when they were denied <laughs> service, they, um, they, they, were, they were, had the basis for a court case. And they succeeded. You know, uh, and now what that meant was that uh, the um, bars could no longer be closed down purely for serving, quote-unquote, homosexuals. Now they ha the, those who wanted to raid or close the bars had to find additional reasons, so disorderly conduct or violation of gender or sexual laws or lewd behavior. Um, so I don't want to say that it solved the problem, but it was an, um, an important uh, victory uh, in New York City. They also succeeded, the activists in New York City also succeeded in getting the mayor, John Lindsay, to promise to eliminate sexual entrapment by police. Uh, where attractive police officers would put themselves in a position where they could allege that um, bar patrons or public park um, denizens um, might come on to them or might be accused of coming on to them, and uh, then they'd be arrested. Um, and uh, Lindsay promised to um, eliminate that practice after activists um, pressured him on it. So there were these interesting and important changes happening. But it is true that even as we reached Stonewall, the bars were still largely mafia-owned and controlled. There were still you know, regular bar raids uh, that would happen. In the case of the Stonewall, it was justified uh, by the authorities on the grounds not simply that they were serving homosexuals, but that they were violations of liquor licensing laws, which there probably were, um, and, uh, and um, you know, that there might be violations of other uh, gender and sexual laws going on inside the bar. Well, and the other thing, too, is Stonewall, people look at it with, like, rosy lenses, but the Stonewall was a mafia bar, and not only was it dark and gross, it was also, they didn't uh, sterilize their glasses, and so you, I think it was hepatitis breakouts there, um, and so, like, it it was, it was a place of community, because a lot of street people, like, that left, you know, smaller towns to move to New York to try to at least find some uh, semblance of acceptance, uh, were there, and so it was community, even though it was a um, kind of a deranged community at that. So, yeah, it, it had exactly those two dimensions. It was exploitative. There were reports of watered-down drinks. Uh, there were, uh, you know, the the owners and managers were not necessarily kind to the patrons. Uh, they didn't keep conditions in good order, as you say. There were really bad. Um, clean it, cleaning and um, sterilizing and sanitization processes in place. Uh, and there were, you know, restrictions at the door. Uh, so, you know, gay liberationists after Stonewall would criticize places like the Stonewall for being, um, you know, examples of 
of business exploitation or capitalist exploitation. Um, but at the same time, it, it was, as you say, a gathering place, a place um, to find community, a place to enjoy oneself. Uh, and that's why uh, some people liken what, what gay bars were for the LGBT community to what churches were for the black community or factories were for the, the union movement, that they were, they were places where people gathered, they were places where solidarity was formed, where consciousness was changed, and ultimately they could become places of politicization, you know, which we know happened in churches for the civil rights movement, and we know happened on factory floors for the union movement, and bars functioned um, in some of the same ways for the LGBT movement. So you have a, a theory called the history of bar politics. Can you describe that? Um, well, I, I think you're referring to, I, I try in my introduction to talk about um, uh, several different ways uh, historians have uh, interpreted why the Stonewall riots occurred. Uh, so one theory has been that we should see the Stonewall riots as a culmination of homophile movement organizing in the 50s and 60s. The second theory, which is I think the one that you're alluding to, it yeah. argues that, yeah, we should interpret um, Stonewall uh, as a culmination of bar-based resistance practices that stretched back decades. Um, so LGBT people in bar-based contexts might not have thought of themselves as activists or part of the homophile movement, but they did have a whole panoply of strategies to resist oppression, uh, and that really um, provided the basis for what happened at Stonewall. The third theory emphasizes the influence of other radicalizing social movements, such as black power, the anti-war movement, the counterculture, the women's liberation movement, on LGBT communities, and suggests that that was kind of the spark that uh, lit uh, the flame in 1969. And then I try to put forward a fourth uh, theory, which is really a revival of an old theory that I found in one of the primary sources from 1969. Um, and that theory draws on a sociological uh, theory that says that revolutions are most likely to happen not when um, conditions are at their worst and not when there's a period of slowly improving conditions, but rather when there's a period of improving conditions that's followed by rapid reversals. Uh, and that theory had been developed to explain all sorts of revolutions and rebellions in world history um, by a sociologist and political scientist named Joseph Davies. Uh, and one gay journalist in 1969 reporting for The Advocate um, used that theory to say, hey, that's, that looks exactly like what's been going on in New York City. Conditions have been slowly improving. Um, in the second half of the 60s, there were those reforms that were achieved with Mayor John Lindsay, uh, and then a series of things happened. And I try to fill in the gaps in, the, um, in that account by talking about all the reversals, uh, the election of Richard Nixon in November 68, his inauguration in January 69, a series of police killings of LGBT people in March, April, and May, and June of 1969, uh, uh, and uh, a series of police raids on LGBT bars. And so uh, I, I, I find that an, a very interesting way to, of thinking about why the stolen rights happened when they happened. I think people were sensing that the mood of the country was changing after all the reforms of the 60s, that we might be entering a much more conservative period, um, uh, symbolized by Nixon's call for a return to law and order politics, uh, and uh, and I think that contributed to the anger and fury that uh, erupted at Stonewall, the sense that um, things were no longer heading in the right direction. We have a president today that believes in law and order politics, um, and things are turning for the worse. Trans people are being booted out of the military. Um, there's different HHS documents that are saying that you can't even mention the word trans uh, within uh, government literature. When do things start, um, as far as activism goes, like, when do things start happening uh, in the present day? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, first of all, I have to acknowledge, you know, we, we talk a lot in history about how contemporary events often influence our interpretations of the past. And I think that one of the reasons I was attracted to that that theory, um, originally invoked in 1969, was that it really did map so so well onto our current situation, and I wondered if it was applicable. Now, you know, that theory has largely been disproven as a kind of hard and fast 
uh, you know, social science causality theory. Yeah. Um, um, so we can't say that X plus Y equals Z in the sense of social change. Uh, I still think it's an interesting theory, even if it isn't applicable in 100% of circumstances, doesn't mean that it doesn't have uh, value and explanatory um, potential. And uh, so I think some people would say that we are seeing signs of those kinds of eruptions, um, uh, you know, right now. I think sometimes it takes a little bit, um, a little while for people to figure out exactly what to do next. Um, uh, if one of the more progressive candidates defeats Trump in the next presidential election, we could look back and say that even just within the realm of electoral politics, that those period, that period of reversal was followed by, you know, um, um, a reaction, you know, in the, in the electoral realm. Uh, but on the street, you know, level and on the level of revolution and rebellion, um, uh, I'm wondering that same thing myself. <laughs> maps uh, so carefully onto our situation. Why aren't there more strategically savvy um, direct action protests? Happening, and I have to say that you know, in the in the last third of my book, where I look at um, demonstrations that happened in the four and a half years after Stonewall, I, I really enjoyed uh, showcasing the creativity of LGBT activism uh, in that period. They were really smart about their targets. They were really smart about the kinds of demonstrations they organized. Um, they were very media savvy. It reminded me a lot of, in a lot of ways, of, of AIDS activism in the 80s. Um, um, and I think we really need a lot, need some of that right now. Uh, I haven't seen that same kind of strategic creativity um, in uh, a lot of the protests that are happening um, against. Uh, the Trump administration and, and the conservative turn in American politics. That's what I really like about your book is it focuses on the people on the street and the people that are looking only to themselves to improve their collective situation. Electoral politics really doesn't enter the picture in your book until 1972 with the Democratic primary. I think some people are just hoping that, um, you know, we'll have AOC Jesus liberate us all. <laughs> no, that's right. You know, as a political person myself, I tend to uh, orient myself to social movements rather than political candidates. I think it's dangerous to um, uh, to put too much hope. Uh, I think electoral politics is very important, and I think um, the actions of political figures um, are really important. That doesn't mean that that's where I place my energies and my resources. Uh, so, yeah, I'm much more interested in, in social movement stories. I think those um, provide the foundations for what happens in, in national, state, and local politics. And um, if we have powerful movements advocating for social change, you know, then I think social change can happen. And uh, so, yeah, in my book, I, 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 I've sensed within at least queer studies in higher education, there's been so much attention over the last couple of decades to to theories about gender and sexuality, but I think we have a much less sophisticated and developed sense about um, action. And I, I was really struck in some parts of my book, you see uh, radical vision statements that call for X, Y, Z, and then nothing uh, that translates from that into political action. Uh, and then other times you see a direct connection between the visions um, and the agendas that people are articulating and then what they actually do uh, to, make, uh, to make social change. So, yeah, I, I wanted to shine a, a stronger light on um, LGBT protests and demonstrations, both before Stonewall, for reasons we talked about earlier, and, and post-Stonewall. Well, what's interesting about the visions is some of the th really easy things that you would think would be very attainable, like non-discrimination laws and employment and housing, we don't have a national eDNA. We just don't. It, you can get fired for being gay in Kentucky or something like that. Um, and that's, no, that's that's right. And we see, you know, we see in in the period covered by my book the the early development of those laws. So first in um, East Lansing and San Francisco, uh, those were the first jurisdictions. And really, we should recognize we talk about um, LGBT rights laws. Those were um, basically amendments to the existing civil rights laws that prohibited discrimination on certain bases. And so those laws existed and generally covered race. 
nationality, national origin, religion, sex. Um, but um, the goal um, in the early 70s of the LGBT movement was to add uh, what was often called sexual preference in that period, and then later gender identity and gender expression. And, uh, you know, I've argued in um, previous books that what we really began to see in the 1970s was... Um, was a lot of geographic variability. So we had jurisdictions in the United States that repealed their sodomy laws, that repealed their um, their cross-dressing laws, and that had anti-discrimination laws based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And then we had parts of the countries, the country that had neither of those, um, you know, none of those things. Uh, and uh, in the absence of national um, uh, national legal change. That things were left up to you know to our uh, you know cities and towns and counties and states and um, you know we're not the first movement to confront that if we think about the history of interracial marriage you know, that was exactly the situation that led to Loving versus Virginia in 1967 that nationalized what had been going on in many states to um, to legalize uh, interracial marriage. Uh, and uh, we saw that with same-sex marriage, where first it, we saw change at the state level, and then eventually it was nationalized through Supreme Court decisions. Um, but yeah, it's taken a really long time <laughs> to have basic, um, uh, basic national um, um, uh, anti-discrimination law, and it remains a question whether we're going to achieve that if we do ever achieve it through a reinterpreting of the ban on sex discrimination, which the courts could do, or whether we're going to see it through, you know, through national uh, legislative reform, uh, and um, those are the two routes that I can envision uh, as to how that would happen. Or does a state like Mississippi need its own version of the Stonewall riots? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, no, that's that, right. That, right. That can definitely be it. Um, oh. One of the things I find interesting is that um, we were talking earlier about the actual Stonewall, the bar, the physical spatial location. And it was there for like two or three years. The cops of the sixth precinct didn't bother it. And then they raided it once, I think, on a Tuesday. And then they came back on a Friday. They didn't raid it when it was empty. They raided it when it was jam-packed. And then that Friday is when things broke loose. Um, we'll talk about the actual night of the riot. Yeah, we. it's not clear why they raided, you know, at 1 or 2 in the morning, um, uh, as opposed, as you say, to earlier in the evening when raids were more, uh, were more common. There are theories that there were official or unofficial uh, investigations into blackmailing uh, rings or sex work or extortion plots, um, um, uh, or sex with minors, uh, you know, other kinds of investigations that might have been going on where they did want to catch people, you know, who were uh, who were there, large numbers of people who were there. We don't really know, and I and I do emphasize one of the mantras in my introduction is there's always more to the story. I say that several times. Um, so there's a lot that we don't know, and I and I try in my book to resist the impulse to uh, make authoritative definitive statements, because I think there are too many people who um, write and speak as though we know for sure certain things happened, certain people were involved um, when uh, accounts differ, accounts are in conflict, uh, so, you know, there's a lot that we that we don't know. But, yeah, the police um, initially uh, undercover um, uh, entered the bar. Um, it was actually, be that actually began on the evening of the 27th, um, and then when they declared themselves um, and um, uh, asked for identifications and began sorting through who they wanted to detain and who they didn't. You know, that's real. That by then it was in the early morning hours of of June 28th, and so as was typical, they they let many people go. Um, they detained um, um, you know, disproportionately uh, people of color, trans people, bar managers, bartenders people without IDs, people who talked back or fought back, um, and let everybody else go, those folks, many of those folks remained on the streets nearby, and they would play a critical role in what happened next. Uh, and then when the police began to escort those in the bar to the police wagons outside, that's when um, the, the crowd that had gathered outside began to erupt. And so some of the people who were put into police wagons either freed themselves or were freed by other people in the crowd. There were some 
physical scuffles um, involved, um, and eventually the riot, the, you know, the crowd was riled up enough with throwing coins, throwing objects, um, um, uh, breaking the windows, that the police retreated inside the bar, uh, and there was an effort to light the bar on fire. There was a uprooted parking meter that was used to try to break down the door, um, and at least by some of the accounts, at exactly the, the final moment before the police inside might have gotten even more violent and perhaps even used their their um, uh, guns, uh, reinforcements arrived from the police and um, um, began to um, try to get the crowd under control and uh, take more of the patrons uh, away in wagons. And what ensued, yeah, was then several nights of rioting. Yeah, what's amazing is one of the, a Village Voice reporter was actually in the bar with the police because they he was kind of an in between zone, and the police go here. You need to be in here with us, and then they talked about how uh, the discrepancy between beating up an LGBT be LGBT person versus an African American when they said one of them said, "quote You can't beat a sick man." Um, it's just amazing. Like even though that the LGBT movement was vilified like African Americans are still lower on the totem pole for New York City police at that time. Yeah, that's an, I, I find that a really, really interesting quotation. So yeah, one of the police officers uh, he's basically saying he likes, he used the N-word but I'll say black riots more than fairy riots or faggot riots um, because you could beat up um, the again he used the n-word um, African Americans um, but you can't beat up uh, fairies because they're sick and you can't beat sick people now you know first of all it, it's horrific uh, you know what that suggests about the police um, attitudes about um, African Americans uh, second it's really fascinating about how they sort through you know the comparison between um, LGBT people and, and African Americans, it of course we understand today suggests a non-intersectional understanding that there are LGBT people of color who are part of both communities. You know, but I also find it really fascinating because you know there have been such intense community-wide debates about the whiteness of the rioters, the people of color who played important roles in the rioters. That quotation, at least, suggests that that police officer did not perceive the rioters as brown or black. Yeah. Because I think if he had perceived them as brown or black, he would have been happy to beat them up. Um, and, you know, you put that alongside the other 30 or so media accounts that I present, and it reads to lots of important questions, uh, I think. Um, to this day. Oral yeah, oral histories, you know, have emphasized the important role of people of color. Um, but those accounts from the time do not. There's a few Puerto Ricans mentioned and a few accounts. Um, I would think that many journalists would have, uh, given the, the moment, would have uh, referred to the rioters as um, black or brown if they had been. Um, and so why did they not? And, and, I, you know, and I think on trans issues, there's a similar community-wide debate. There, we do get clear accounts of the prominent role played by you know, gender queer trans people, at least how th that's how we might refer to them today. And um, there, too, there's a lot of interesting stuff. The trans periodicals of the period, the Erickson Educational Foundation and Transvestia, did not cover the Stonewall riots. And it was the gay um, press, especially the Mattachine Society of New York newsletter, that insisted that the, the trans people played uh, a prominent and important and visible role um, um, at the forefront of the rioting. Yeah, so that's yeah. fascinating too. Yeah, um, real quick before we leave off, my guest has been Mark Stein. He's the uh, author of Stonewall Riots, a documentary history book, uh, documentary history, I'm sorry. Um, one of the people that were arrested at the riots was Dave Van Ronk, who is, uh, for those of you that liked Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers film was the inspiration for that. Like, how did he get there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he, by all accounts, at least that I've seen, is identified as straight, uh, was an active folk singer in the Greenwich Village music scene, and was walking by and got involved in the fighting and w then was pulled in by the police. And he apparently take, took a swing. He may have been drinking. Uh, I think he may have been performing down the street or going to a performance down the street. It's a good reminder that there were allies who were involved. Um, it's a good reminder that non-LGBT people can be victimized by 
um, anti-LGBT violence, uh, and you know that was the case. Uh, that was certainly the case with him. I, I haven't seen any uh, interviews with him about his role. Later interviews with him about his role in the riots. That would be interesting to look at. But definitely um, one of yeah one of several figures who um, didn't necessarily identify as LGBT, but who were there. My guest has been Mark Stein. The book, The Stonewall Riots: A Documentary History. It's a great read. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this is the Heather McQuay Show. We'll be back next week with only God knows what. Uh, stay tuned for more public affairs. And uh, this is, of course, the Heather McCoy Show. KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Sun Ra Orchestra live Monday, July 15th and Tuesday, July 16th at 8.30 p.m. at the Hollywood Theater in Portland. Just back from their European tour celebrating band director Marshall Allen's 95th birthday, the 15-member Sun Ra Orchestra will play two shows of experimental cosmic jazz and improvisational music. Again, that's the Sun Ra Orchestra, Monday, July 15th, and Tuesday, July 16th, at 8.30 p.m. at the Hollywood Theater, 4122 Northeast Sandy Boulevard in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. The time now is 11 o'clock. Coming up next is a rebroadcast of the Black Book Talk interview featuring Renee Watson, author of the novel Watch Us Rise. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from Portland Saturday Market. 46 years of American-made arts and crafts, freshly prepared international foods, local artisans, and local music in downtown Portland. Open every Saturday and Sunday in Waterfront Park now through Christmas Eve. The event schedule, vendor information, and more is available at portlandsaturdaymarket.com.